Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Atlanta Business Radio's Tuesdays with Corey. Hey, Corey, what's going on? Hey, Katie. Another great show today. Yeah. Uh, Today on Tuesdays with Corey, of course, the premise of the show is that we talk to successful female business owners and C-suite executives and learn about their contributions to their communities, industries, companies, and organizations. And today, we've outdone ourselves unquestionably. We have Lisa Fay, uh, who has experience uh, as a 30-year veteran of Coca-Cola and also does a lot of keynote speeches. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. Glad to have you. Patricia Friedman, who has a 30-year experience as an estate planning attorney with the Bowdoin Spratt Law Firm. Patricia, welcome. Thank you. Bowden. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We have Mallory Atkinson, who is a managing partner and co-owner of Shear Structural. Thanks for having me. Mallory, welcome. Thank you. And we have Angie Raykop, who is a CFP and certified financial planner and has 25 years of business experience. Yes. Thank you for having me, Corey. Very good. Well, today we'll start off with Lisa. And Lisa, you have a ton of experience. I'm not exactly sure where to start, but I think... (laughs) the Coca-Cola experiences is worth talking about. Absolutely. Um, I am probably one of a uh, last few of a dying breed, if you will. I was actually recruited off my college campus through um, the little, you know, Haynes Hall where they come and have all the companies come in and talk to you. I didn't actually get a um, interview with Coke. I talked my way into the uh, an opportunity to talk with them. You know, I find that impossible to believe. You talked your way into something. <laughs> I know, I know. I can't help myself. But, you know, nobody is going to come ask you if you don't ask them. So I uh, talked my way into an interview, became one of a hiring class of 10, and uh, spent 30 years at the same company and retired several years ago. So it, it was an amazing experience that took me uh, all living all over the U.S. and literally all over the world. Well, you held a number of positions uh, when you were with Coca-Cola. Yeah, as I you know, sat back and looked, I spent about 10 years in sales and 10 years in marketing and then 10 years in training and development, but not as blocked as that. I kind of kept going back and forth, which gave me kind of a unique perspective to look at things from how do we create things? How do we, they move through the entire supply chain and how do they ultimately impact the customer and the consumer? What did you like best about your tenure there? You know, there's nothing like working for a big, bodacious, fabulous brand. Um, you feel like you are in, kind of in the center of the CPG universe. Everybody's got a feeling about Coke whether everybody's got a story about Coke and with our involvement with the Olympics, with everything that you see and hear, you really are in the fabric of America and the fabric of the world. And that's a pretty neat place to be. Yeah, they've they've had certainly a profound effect with their advertising, their products. I mean, I know I like the Powerade product and, uh, you know, just you must have gotten some tremendous experience to put you where you are now. Absolutely. And and also forward looking at what the changing landscape in beverages is today and being able to have products that meet consumers' needs, not just in carbonated soft drinks. 
Yeah, certainly the, you know, the Powerade, you know, uh, product certainly probably has impact on that. Absolutely. And the water and our juices with Simply Orange Juice. Um, We are in the milk business now. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And then if you travel internationally, seeing our products that make a difference there as well and the jobs we create. I think that's one of the things that makes me proudest as I look at our global expansion is we can really change the economies by having our products available. Well, certainly one of the, I'm a fan of the Diet Coke and the Coke Zero. And one of the things that was fascinating to me was when one of the first times I went over to Europe, I tried the Diet Coke over there and it tasted completely different. It actually tasted very good. I, me- I remember thinking, this, this, you know, this can't be Diet Coke. And I said, well, it's a different <laughs> recipe. And I, did, I wasn't aware that different companies you know, had different recipes for their, for their products. Oftentimes, depending on the country that you're doing business in, it is the change in the sweetener. So, for example, if you go to Mexico, our products there are made with cane sugar because it's such a uh, staple of the economy there. So a Mexican Coke does taste different than a U.S. Coke. And the different formulations of especially the diet sweeteners will um, have an impact on the taste. So you made the decision after 30 years to retire. Was that hard? Um, in some ways, it was. You know, like uh, as business continues to change, there's lots of restructures going on. Coke is no different than that. I was impacted in a restructure and I looked around. And I did not see work that was going to give me, let me work, use my passions. And I met with several of the senior leaders and I decided it was a great opportunity. I had started speaking about two years earlier and it was a great time for me to be able to shift my focus and invest in me and a passion I have and to take the pivot. So it was just a great opportunity. Was there any fear or any unrest or anxiety associated with the transition and sort of hanging out your own shingle? No, I'm, no, I'm just kidding. There's all there's always kind fear. of a loaded question, I suppose. <laughs> there's always fear with that, especially when you've had um, the words the Coca-Cola company behind your name. Uh, but it it is also because I had all that experience behind me. I when I went to business school. I didn't realize how much I had learned by working at Coca-Cola until I went to business school and found some of the professors talking about things. And I was like, well, we did that. and We did that. and We did that. You forget how much you have learned and how much you can share. Um, But I do miss being associated with a big brand. I also miss being associated with big brains. Um, the level of people that I worked with at the Coca-Cola company were top-notch. And I miss just being able to walk down the hall and brainstorm and have that connectivity with so many really smart people. Yeah, there's no shortage of mental horsepower there. That's for sure. Yeah. You made the decision to get an MBA. I did. Tell us about that. Walk us through why, why you did that. Well, I was a radio, television, and motion pictures major at the University of North Carolina. And so it really wasn't the basic business degree that most people had. I got to a point in my career that I really wanted to be more well-rounded and had an opportunity to take a job in Atlanta where I understood why the leader wanted me to do the work. I didn't really understand why I wanted to do the work. 
And so he said, figure out what would make you want to do this. And I said, I want to go to MBA school. And he said, get in. So I took the plunge, did a 16-month program because I wanted to invest in myself and round out my skills and get confident in areas I did not have confidence in. So the marketing, I found out, I really knew a lot of the textbook stuff from working at the Coca-Cola company. However, the broader areas of business, it gave me the ability to compete um, in often male-dominated scenarios in areas that I didn't previously have background in, but it gave me the oomph I needed to be at the C-suite tables on some bigger topics. When you went out on your own, you started to do keynote speaking. Yes. Tell us, how does one get into that? And, and, and tell us about that. Um, well, I believe the universe kind of directs you. Uh, I uh, helped found the women's um, network at the Coca-Cola company. I brought a speaker in. I got the opportunity to introduce her from main stage. And also at the, after the meeting, she said, you're really good on stage. And I said, well, thank you. And she said, no, you're... That's not really a surprise, by the way. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Um, and she said, no, you're really good. And I said, thank you very much. And she said, I don't think you understand what I'm trying to tell you. And I said, well, then let, let me buy you lunch. And she said, I think you should consider being a speaker. We met, we talked about it. Um, she told me the good and the bad and the ugly about the speaking business. I joined the National Speakers Association in the state of Georgia. I took, I have a, a one-year class on the business of speaking. And I created my first keynote, did it, had it reviewed, and then changed everything I did um, to get better. And my career was born from that. Well, I think you have, a, you've obviously had a lot of success and a lot of experience. I know that one of the things that had a huge impact on me when I first was introduced to you was the TED Talk that you did that was posted on your website. And the concept really has to do with, you know, to me, what I took from the call, what I took from that video was persistence, you know, don't let anyone tell you you can't do something in one more call. Tell us, tell us about that video. Well, uh, the one, the TED Talk you're referring to is the dialing for a dream. And it literally is how I talked myself into a job at NBC Sports and then ultimately talked my way uh, into the interview at Coca-Cola. You know, I was um, from a small town of 800 people. Um, the whole idea of being in uh, radio television wasn't something that people grew up to do. And I also believed that Nobody's going to give you the opportunities. And I wasn't fortunate enough to have school paid for, so I had to figure out how to pay for it myself. I knew I was in a major that I needed to get some experience in. So, And literally in those days, you just picked up the phone and called information for New York City, for NBC Sports, and kept talking to every secretary in the building till I found the woman that would hire me. And... Then I called her. I figured out she was at her desk every day at two. So I called her every day at two. And she finally said, if I hire you, will you quit calling me? And I said, yes. And if you hire me once, you'll hire me forever. And I spent about 10 years doing some freelance work for NBC Sports. But it showed me that you have to be able to pick up the phone to get to the people that can do what you want, you need them to do because they're not going to run into you randomly. So as you see people, meet people, have opportunities, it really is incumbent on you to make a lot of your own breaks. Yeah, closed mouth doesn't get fed, right? Absolutely. 
that I think had a, that I thought was very impactful because you just decided, Hey, I want to do, I, I want to work at a North Carolina basketball game. I want to get some experience with NBC sports. And to me, it was, the video was, uh, I, I think very well done, but also telling about, you know, how your persistence and it paid off. And it, I think it laid a lot of groundwork for, for where you are today, not taking no for an answer. Yeah. And I think the other um, piece of that too is being willing to take feedback. I mean, sometimes you want to do things that maybe aren't up your alley that aren't, you know, we can aspire to be, you know, I'd love to be a great singer too, but that whole skill thing gets in the way for me. But being able to take feedback to continue to improve your performance, to put yourself in the position to be ready for the next level, I think is the other thing that I learned along the way. So with your experience working for the Coca-Cola company and being a keynote speaker, which, which do you like the best and why? I love being able to inspire people to next level performance, whether it's an, in, as an individual or as a company. I think that's the one great thing about uh, working at Coke is I spent most of my career in food service working with restaurant operators. And I was only successful if I helped make their business more successful because if they had a successful restaurant, a successful convenience store, a successful movie theater, my business would naturally grow as a piece of that. So I think I, I learned a lot at Coke through experience with a lot of businesses that really, in a lot of ways, I'm doing the same thing. It's all about growth. You have another business. I do. That's that's travel related. Yeah. I do um luxury and adventure travel. And how did you get into that? Um well, uh I was married for a while and we tried to have kids and it unfortunately did not work out for us. I'm sorry to hear that. Um thank you. That's you know one of my greatest um, Mrs. I think was not having the opportunity to be a mom. So now I just try to be a really great aunt. Um, but when we realized that we didn't have to save our money to educate our children, we decided to educate ourselves. So we started traveling all over the world. And by the time I was 50, I'd been to all seven continents. And there was um, a man that I used to work with that actually was a retired Coke guy that owned a travel agency. And I used to work, do some stuff with him. And he said, anybody that travels as much as you do needs to help other people see the world. When you retire, you're going to come work for me. And I said, no, I'm not. And then again, the university kind of opened itself up and I started um, helping other people travel. And I really struggled with how much I would enjoy helping other people travel versus just me traveling. And um, one of my favorite stories was a friend of mine's parents. Um, she wanted to go to Paris. She's in her early 80s. And that had been her dream. And I was able to help her get to Paris, which literally meant a car to pick her up at her house, wheelchairs at the airport, uh, a wheelchair on the river cruise ship. And she came back home, her and her husband, and they took me out to a restaurant, their favorite restaurant, where we had to eat at 5.30. And um, as I watched her eyes and listen to her words tell me the story of what that meant to her. It said that 
doing the travel business and helping people have these experiences was amazingly rewarding. And for me, uh, I just got back from a three-week tri- trip to India and my most... Wait, wait a minute. I must have been away from the phone when it rang. I don't see any missed calls on my phone. <laughs> Surely you called to invite me to that, right? Hey, you're always invited. I, you know, Careful. I, <laughs> you're always invited. Um, the, the best moment I had there, I mean, the Taj Mahal was amazing. Varanasi was stunning. But the, the coolest moment was in a local villager's house where they actually invited us to walk through. And our God said that's the first time they'd invited anybody into the house. And in their den, I saw a little board and it had, you know, best student and it had the little athletic awards. And it it is always a great reminder that no matter where you are in the world, people are way more alike than they are different. Everybody wants their kids to have a good education and a good childhood and to play and to achieve. And if we could just figure out a way to show everybody that we're so much more alike and focus on our commonalities, uh, it'd be a much better place to be most of the time. Well, you've had a great deal of experience and success and congratulations and all that. And, you know, one of the things that we like to ask our guests is if, if there were some advice that you would give the, I'm not going to say younger, the less experienced version of Lisa, what would you tell her? I wish I had, um, I would tell her to be open to feedback earlier and to assume good intent by the people that deliver it. Great advice. If there was a young lady that wanted to follow in your footsteps, what advice uh, would you give her? I would say the uh, first thing to do is to know yourself, know your strengths and what you're good at to pay attention to your life for those things that bring you the greatest joy and when you're really in your zone. And if you don't know, ask other people around you to tell you and then to go see and figure out what you can do with that. Because today, careers exist today that never, ever have existed in the past and more could exist in the future and never stop learning. Well, Lisa, you've had a great run. You've been a tremendous guest and continued success. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. Next, we're going to talk to Patricia Friedman, who is an estate planning attorney. Patricia, welcome. Thank you. I am a little bit intimidated to have to follow a motivational speaker on here. <laughs> oh, no, you're just fine. Remember remember how I know you, Patricia. We've sweated for years and years on Saturdays running with team and training. Thank goodness there are no pictures. <laughs> Well, I mean, if they could touch them up, I would look like something there, I think. That's not funny. So, Patricia, you have uh, a wealth of experience as an estate planning attorney. Yes. And prior to that, you, uh, you, know, you graduated from Vanderbilt. You did, your law, you, did, you did law school and graduated from uh, Vanderbilt also. Double door. What made you decide to go to Vanderbilt? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I... Um, well, at least there's one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I went to Vanderbilt initially because I couldn't... Uh, like Lisa, I'm from a small town. 
And I was actually the first person in my family to graduate from college. Where's the small town? Fayetteville, Tennessee, Middle Tennessee. I know exactly nowhere. where it is. Tobacco country. Right. And I wanted to go to a good school, but at the same time, I couldn't conceive of going away too far. So Vanderbilt was about an hour and a half from my family home. And it seemed like a good place to go get a good education and still be able to go home if I wanted to. Of course, I never went home once I got up there, but I thought I might. So that's why I went there initially. That that isn't really hard for me to believe that you didn't go home once you got away. Oh, no. I stayed up there every summer, got a job, found an apartment, never went. I mean, I I go home to visit, but I've never lived at home since I left for college. Well, Nashville's a great city, so it's understandable. That, and that's uh, why I stayed for law school, because Nashville's yeah, such a great city. It, it is a great city. Uh, I think, you know, growing up in the north in Minnesota, um, I don't miss the brutal cold that's up there. And, you know, I moved, I escaped there. I tell people I escaped there in May of April of 97, just because it's too cold. Yep. And, you know, what you get here is the brutal heat and humidity. And, you know, I, I despise that less then I despise the the brutal cold that's up there in the north. But I think with Nashville, you get sort of a taste of all the seasons. It's like here. Yeah. But it, but it's a great city. So how how did you decide that you wanted to go to law school? Oh, well, that's an easy one. When you graduate from undergrad with a major in political science and English literature, what else are you going to do? <laughs> you know, I thought about being an engineer my freshman year until calculus really sort of kicked me in the tail. And then I decided that wasn't going to be the way to go. So I majored in two things I loved, English and political science. And I realized I needed to do something else because there wasn't much you could do. So I went to law school. So I think I'm going to need some verification on the kicked in the tail thing because that I've never seen in knowing you as long as I've have over the years. Um, how did you pick estate planning to focus on? You know that I actually didn't. I um, I primarily focused on corporate tax and corporate law, and I was going to go. I went to New York straight out of law school. My thought was I was going to practice big firm corporate taxation, but. New York firms being what they are, when I was there working as a summer associate, I was from Tennessee. They introduced me to the young up-and-coming partner in the estate planning group, basically by saying, Patricia, you're from Tennessee. Dan's from Alabama. I bet you guys know a lot of people in common. (gasps) Right. I said, yes, and we both wear shoes, too. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? So, um, so I got to know this guy and he started calling me and said, why don't you come to my department instead? And I said, it's not what I want to do. And then he said, how about if I tell you, you can change your mind after a year if you don't like it. And I was always a big fan of putting off permanent decisions. So I said, okay, but he was actually smarter than I was on that one. He knew that once you'd been in a firm practicing in an area for a year, there was no way you were going to go back and and go back to an area where you weren't familiar with the terms and everything. So he knew I would never leave once I got in. And you worked with big clients and, and small clients, large firms, small, small firms? Well, I, my clients are all people. When you yeah. do estate planning, your clients are always people. And that was one thing I learned once I started practicing law. It is a, and I'm not in any way denigrating other people and their clients. I just feel like I find it much more rewarding to have people as clients they usually are happy when the process is done. They feel like you've accomplished something, whether it's setting up a foundation, whether it's avoiding a huge tax bill, whether it's ensuring that their family business remains in the family. Um, and I've done that at big firms and small firms. So yes, always people, but different size law firms. The estate planning matters aren't widely known. 
you know, some of the issues, you know, what are the levels of estate tax uh, planning and, you know, what are the, I'm trying to find the word I'm looking for, the the amount that uh, is not taxed. Well, so, you know, when I first started practicing law, the the exemption was $600,000 yeah. per person. So that's $1.2 million you could have passed down to your family. And if you think about it, if you're a young couple with a house and some life insurance, all of a sudden you were deemed wealthy by the IRS and would pay an estate tax. So there was a lot more we did sort of around planning around that. But now the exemption is the inflation adjusted numbers just came out. It's 11.18 million per person. So a married couple with over 22 million dollars, which are in and that's indexed for inflation going forward. So they will never have to pay estate taxes until the law changes again, which I'm sure it will at some point. Planning for today, I would say most Americans don't have to worry about the estate tax. And so so you you switch to other things that are more important to them. I mean, we still have clients who have to worry about the estate tax, and we still do planning sure. for that. But now perhaps we're thinking more about capital gains tax and how we can reduce that when the family assets are sold. We're thinking more about things like, who is going to take over my family business? Or... I have a child with a substance abuse problem, and how do I keep my wealth from ruining that child further? So, so they're more, I guess you would call them the softer issues that are sort of risen to the forefront lately. How do you coach your clients to, uh, to uh, avoid, not avoid, but to uh, limit the capital gains that they pay? Well, one of the things that is sort of a misconception that, that I hear from a lot of people is, well, just give it away while you're alive and then you won't own it when you die and then they can't tax it. Well, yeah, well, you probably don't have $22 million, so you weren't going to pay an estate tax anyways. But if you have an old family home that your parents pay, your grandparents, they paid $30,000 for back in the 40s and it's now worth a couple million bucks and you transfer it during lifetime, you get what's called carryover basis, which means... You get that thirty that that million dollar home. You sell it. You've got a nine hundred seventy thousand dollar capital gain. Whereas if you had held on to it, transferred at death, total step up in basis, you can sell it with no capital gains at all. Is there a particular part of what you do that resonates more with you than another? Yes, there there really is. It's so I've been doing this like you said for almost thirty years, and one of the things that I've noticed is a big change in my practice. Really, the the, the the tone of the practice has changed from how do I squirrel every penny away from my family and not give the IRS any money? It's changed to how much is too much to give these kids? How much is too much and how much should I give to charity instead? And I actually love that discussion. That's my favorite part of my practice right there. You know, that's an interesting thing, you know, because uh, even in my business, we, we run into that where, you know, families are, hey, they're inclined to maybe leave some behind, but they don't want to ruin their kids. And and, and it seems like knowing you that you probably are in, in, in many ways like a counselor to them. Yes. To sort of coach them. A very expensive psychologist is the way we sometimes describe ourselves. But it's, it is it is so important to be able to, for people to, you know, I mean, I know from knowing you that you create that air of consultative engagement where people can speak openly and not feel like they're going to get judgment or something in return. And that's crucial. But I, but there has to be a big part of what you do that is, you know, counseling and kind of, you know, being able to have somebody bounce ideas off you and gee, I have this money, you know, and I, I don't want to ruin my kids by giving them mm -hmm. too much. And um, uh, so do you have, uh, how do you handle all that? Well, one of the things that I have, and, and this is, um, 
One of the reasons I think I do very well with female clients is a lot of times, and I don't mean to denigrate men, Corey, please. I I will have a a couple come in and I'll see a plan that was structured by another lawyer who was probably a 70-year-old guy. And it, you know, everything that the wife gets is in trust and everything that the husband gets is not. And when I ask them why, because the wife happens to be vice president of the bank or something like that, they have no idea why it was ever set up that way. So we, one of the things I've always done is discuss with the clients what their goals are and how we're going to get there. And I always make it clear that while I may have some opinions on better ways to do things, the decision is really theirs. It's not mine. And I don't know that that was typically how people were um, advised in the past. I think there were sometimes, and, and again, not all lawyers, but there were some lawyers who felt the need was, well, I think you need to do it this way because this is the way you need to do it. And I sort of feel like, well, you could do all this if you wanted to. I, you know, I had some, this couple come to me and they had some family land, which was about to be very, very valuable because an interstate was going by it. And they had been advised by all these different people about all these different things they could do, all involving like-kind exchanges, that sort of thing to avoid taxes. And I said, well, here's something you could do. I said, you could pay the then low capital gains tax and you could just keep the money and you could retire. And they said, how come no one ever told us that? That, you know, we are trained to minimize taxes. That's our that's our first tag, but that doesn't mean that's your goal because they were getting so stressed out about the process of maintaining all these different structures that people were giving to them when really all they really wanted to do was quit their jobs and retire and travel and visit their grandkids. Well, the law, like, like a lot of other businesses, has so many different angles. And I think the fact that you're a sharpshooter and you focus on really largely one area uh, has to be incredibly useful for your clients because you're able to give them advice like that because you're touching these things every day. Well, yeah, and we don't we don't do anything else. I mean, if someone calls me and says, "Look, my child's getting a divorce. How do I?" I give them another name because that is not what I do. And yet, believe it or not, this actually happens relatively regularly. Either grandma got a DUI because she had one too many cocktails out at dinner the other night, or my kid got a DUI and. We don't do those. So we send them out to someone who does. So we really do make sure we stay focused on what we do. You have a number of things that resonate with you personally. And I know I know you from team and training and raising money for the Leukemia Society. What other things do you do personally to give back? Well, I'm, I've been really very involved in my kids' schools. Yeah. I, to the level of serving on the board of trust of each of those schools, I was on the board of the children's school for several years and took that through the tran- a very difficult transaction transition, actually. It was the, the transition from a head who'd been there for almost 30 years to a new head. And that was a very difficult time to be on the board, but it was something I felt very strongly about. And now I'm on the, the board at the Paideia School where my son is about to graduate. And um, I, I feel like those two institutions have given my children a really good head start on their lives as sort of independent thinking individuals. And I feel like it's important to me to give back. Yeah, well, there's no question that you do all that. And it's interesting to me, you know, hearing about your son on all our runs and stuff. And it's just now he's going to graduate from high school. And there's a big part of me that says, when did all this happen? You know, and uh, if I can brag a little bit, Patricia's son, Jack, is going to Georgia Tech on a baseball scholarship, which is 
five or 10 minutes from my house and I'm probably going to start watching baseball again. So and I is, can actually see the field from my office. Uh, that is out. That's going to be, that's going to be outstanding. He's going to have a, he's going to have a great run with that. And you know, Patricia, you've been a great guest. If you could give the less experienced version of you some advice, knowing what you know now, what would that advice be? You know, I think what I would tell myself is to do a better job um, drawing a line between where the workday ended and where my family life began. I, I, I will admit that I did not do a very good job of that because I think you are, and, and I may be generalizing, but as a woman, you're trying to show, in a, in a very male-dominated field, you're trying to show that you are just as available as they are. And I, you know, it sort of hit home when my daughter's preschool teacher told me that she sure had a lot of meetings. <laughs> it's kind of sad. If there was a young lady that wanted to follow in your footsteps, and I'm sure there are a lot of them that do, what would you tell them? I'll tell them what I told my daughter recently. Uh, find a passion, find a mentor, and dream big. Yeah, right on. I mean, Patricia, you've been a great guest. You've had great success. Thank you for being on the show. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do so? Maybe you could give them an email address or a phone yeah, number. It's my full name, Patricia Friedman at bowdensprat.com. And the number is 404-523-8337. And Lisa Fay, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Um, remember my name, first of all, is spelled Lisa Fay, like Tina Fay, F-E-Y. You can find me, uh, my website is lisafay.com. My email is lisa at lisafay.com. And my phone number is 404-951-8401. Thank you. Mallory Atkinson. Mallory, how are you this morning? Good. How are you doing? I'm great. Uh, Mallory is the co-founder and managing partner of Sheer Structural. And in a role as partner, she's currently responsible for business development, marketing, finance, and operations. I have a question already. Yeah. When do you sleep? Um... You know, sometime between the hours of like midnight and four, typically is about yeah my sleep schedule. No, I'm just kidding. I try to get a good good amount of sleep, but I work a lot on the weekends, which is you know part of the nature of the business. How did you get the idea to start your company? Oh man, I think um, as an entrepreneur, that sort of bug was planted in me. I don't know. I feel like I've always maybe... yeah. I never would have picked up on that. <laughs> um. I think it probably started when I was nine years old and had a lemonade stand, as all good nine-year-old girls have lemonade stands. And I was on the road, and I remember cars would go by, and they would stop, and they would just come out, and they'd be like, oh, you're so cute. Here, you know, Here's a dollar. But they would never buy any lemonade. They never wanted it. They just wanted to give me money, and I would get really frustrated about that. And so finally, I was like asking them, I was like, well, what would you buy? And they were like, sweet tea. I mean, I grew up here in Atlanta. And so I started selling sweet tea and I would sell out in like an hour. And so I think just like that sort of what has always been instilled in me to like, you know, how to serve others and asking people for what they want and trying to give it to them. So did you patent your sweet tea stand concept? No, I should have done that. Darn it. So you have, your firm is 100% woman owned, right? Yes. Yeah. And women managed, which is an important thing to note too. And how many employees are in your firm? Right now we have eight in just seven months. And... Give the listenership an overview of what your firm does. 
Sure. So I get asked this a lot because a lot of people don't know what structural engineering actually is. Um, We work primarily with architects and people know what architecture is. So an architect designs a building. And if you think of a building as a human body, so an architect would design what it looks like, what color hair, short, tall, and a structural engineer would design the skeleton. So that's what we do. We design a building skeleton. And we primarily work in the commercial sector. Which part of your job you like the best? I know that, you know, you mentioned that you know, business development, marketing, finance, and operation. Is, is there one of those that you like better or that resonates better yeah, more than the other? Yeah, definitely people. I love everything that has to do with people. So oh, that's hiring, a shock. <laughs> hiring, recruiting, culture development, relationship development. That's what I, I love, dealing with people. You mentioned the word culture. What, how would you describe the culture in your company? Um, I think it actually, a good representation of that is how we have our office set up. So we're all in like a 20 by 20 space and it's all open. So we, there's three partners and, and then we have three full-time employees, two part-time. We're all open in the exact same space, have the exact same size desks. And we're just really open, transparent. We constantly communicate with our people all the time, every day. Is it difficult to concentrate with everybody right there? Um, I think it can be sometimes, but at the same time, that's just our culture. That's what works for us. I mean, again, everything that we do is so collaborative and we want our you know young engineers to learn from our senior engineers. And so they just kind of need to hear those conversations. And of course, there's always earphones. So if you really need to focus, just you know, put some earphones in. How did you, how did you decide to become an engineer? So I'm actually not an engineer. My background's in construction. So I went to Georgia Tech. Um, originally for industrial design to work on the product side and then realize that you really can't get a job industrial design. And me, I just, I'm too realistic for that. So I went into construction because in the early 2000s, you know, the construction industry was booming and I graduated right before the recession and um, got a, a number of job offers in construction and then got a job offer for a place where I was interning to help them start a marketing department. And I didn't know anything about marketing. And so started doing that. I was there for almost 10 years. And in there, just it was an engineering firm. And so I really got to love engineering, got to love dealing with the people, amazingly smart, talented people, a lot from Georgia Tech. And um, and then I always wanted more. So I went back to school and got my MBA. And um, how was that experience? Uh, it was great. I loved getting my my MBA. It gave me that foundation again. My with my degree in construction, it just I didn't have this sort of you know fundamentals of the business yet. I was working directly under the CEO and working with him every day, and so I really needed to get that sort of baseline of, of business knowledge. So that was very helpful in my career. It is unique to see females uh, in construction. Do you think that that gives you an advantage? I do. Um, I really think we just have, uh, you know, at our company, this sort of like amazing ability to kind of see a, the broad picture of a project. Um, it's it's very interesting to me. We're actually the only all women owned and managed structural engineering company in Metro Atlanta. I hope we are not the last. Um, I think you know women bring a lot to this industry. I mean, you look at the numbers; they're like six percent more profitable when you have women in leadership, thirty five percent greater return on equity when you have women in leadership roles. So it's really a, a more higher twenty percent higher innovation. So it's really great. So I, ho- I hope more you know women are in leadership roles in the industry. That'd be great. Well, they certainly know how to get things done in my experiencers mm-hmm. and uh, they, don't, they don't suffer any fools and there's very little gray area. Yeah. That I find refreshing. Yeah. How, how does Sheer Structural get its clients? 
Oh, primarily relationships. I mean, the the three of us, um, our, the three business partners, we have amazing relationships in different networks throughout the industry and outside the industry, and it's all word of mouth. So you already have a, a, an existing network, you know, architects, people that you've done business with in the yes, past. Yes. What other marketing are, you know, you mentioned marketing. What other marketing do you do to get the word out? Um, I do a lot of things like this, you know, talking about the business. Um, I try not to market only inside the industry um, because I think that, you know, there's so, I mean, like you guys could all know architects that could work with us. So I think there's a lot of things that um, we need to do to kind of look outside of the construction industry to get work. Um, I do a lot on social media. I think that's a really fun place. And also recruiting through our people. Um, I once heard that everybody knows like 200 people, like 200 people that would stop and like wave to you and, you know, uh, talk to you on the street. And so when I think about, you know, just our like little less than 10 people, I mean, just our little less than 10 people, we know like 2000 people. So if the, all those people knew what we did, um, then we could do great work. You mentioned social media. How do you use that? And, and what mediums do you, th- do you are most effective for helping forward your company's agenda? Um, right now we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Obviously LinkedIn is a great platform professionally just to talk about what's going on with the company. Um, I find Instagram is this really fun place to sort of engage in a different way. We've actually gotten work off of Instagram, which really? is, yeah, gotten a project off Instagram. So that's really fun. You know, you kind of use different tags and we had somebody that was looking for, that was trying to do a specific project in Atlanta. And had clicked on the tag and reached out to me for a proposal. That that is interesting. So is is one of those four mediums more successful for you in in, in building relationships and getting business than another? I think it's really more integrated. And again, I'm not, I mean, social is great, but it does not knock like a face-to-face interaction. I mean, it is just, that's sort of a, a helpful tool. I can learn a little bit more about someone or maybe I look at a client and, and say, oh my gosh, you know, they just won this amazing award that they talked about. You know, that gives me another excuse to reach out and talk to them. Um, but it's a great tool for that. Well, and you can put, you know, you, I imagine you would probably have information out there that would help you know, ship the business to you. And uh, to me, it, it seems like you have a very big advantage being with your experience and, and who you are, that you would have an, it seems to me you have a, a very good advantage being in the construction industry because you have the marketing experience, you have the schmoozing, the people, and then you have the, the technical experience. That to me, I think is, is very good for you. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to me how in this industry, um, and I talk about the industry being meaning like the building design industry. Um, most people on the ownership level are technical professionals. Like that's what they do. They were great architects. They were great engineers, great contractors. And then they move their way up or you know, they start their own firms. But there are very few people who are business savvy. So a lot of it, it, it takes that time for them to really understand how a business operates. You know, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm a great project manager. So of course, I'd be a great business owner. And that doesn't always translate. So I really hope in our industry that more people come through the business channel than just the technical channel. What kinds of clients are you searching for? I mean, is there a certain industry? Is there a certain, you know, revenue number, a certain number of employees? I mean, people always want to know, okay, well, what are you looking for? 
Yeah, I think for us being so new, we just founded the company back in August. Um, we're not really trying to to limit ourselves, but we do want sustainable growth. Um, on the project side, we love working on adaptive reuse projects. So taking like an old warehouse and converting it into an office or to retail. We actually do a lot of work at Pont City Market. We're doing some work at Crog Street Market. So that's kind of fun. They're sort of messy and interesting and the buildings are beautiful and we love, and you know, sustainable design. Um, that's always really fun projects. Yeah. So uh, to say differently, you know, you're, you want to build a relationship, it seems like, and uh, you take the perspective that if it's the right person, maybe, you know, a business that is uh, growing uh, will at some point be a much larger business. Mm-hmm. When you're not I mean, I can't even imagine that you're away from sheer structural, but when you have free time, how do you spend it? Um, I really like to be involved with the community. Um, I do a lot of work with the Atlanta Bike Coalition, the Atlanta Beltline. Um, I live in the city, and so that's just really fun for me. It's things that I'm passionate about. Um, so that's why. And of course, with Angie, you know, working with Golf for the Kids, really fun. The Beltline. Tell me. Do you like that? I mean, do you ride your bike on it? Do you run on it? Yeah, I live right right off of it. Yeah. So um, it's really, it's a it's a great connector of the city. It's a great way to, you know, see different communities and can't wait for it to be complete. It's, um, it's been a pleasure knowing you. You, you have a, a great, you're one of the, you're very unique in that, you know, you're really good with people. You have a pretty good, uh, uh, under, obviously a firm understanding of your business. I think you're, one word that strikes me when I interact with you is that you're neat, you're unique. You're able to sort of do all these things. How do you decide each day what to do? Because you're, it seems like you're good at a lot of different things. Yeah, I have an amazing to-do list and I have a rigorous Does calendar. it ever get shorter? <laughs> no, it only gets longer. And then I maintain everything on my calendar. But I also, I try to set goals for myself, yeah. you know, and whether it's like, you know, what I want to accomplish that day or that week or, or before we do X, Y, Z. You know, I try to have, you know, small goals for myself and that keeps me motivated. Yeah, small goals can become big goals. Exactly. And then, Mallory, if somebody, uh, if you needed to, you're probably what, 25? If you needed to (laughs) (laughs) give yourself a younger version of yourself uh, advice five, 10 years ago, knowing what you know now, what would you tell her? I'd say to slow down and enjoy the ride. Um, Did you just say slow down? Yeah, I did say slow down. Okay, I thought thought that's what you said. (laughs) Um, I always, especially earlier on in my career, wanted everything faster and as quickly as possible. And I think sometimes I might've, you know, made too quick of a decision. And so, you know, really, and, and I'm, I'm a runner too. So I know we've talked about running. And so it's, it's a, you know, I'm in it for the long haul. This is an endurance race. I don't, you know, yeah. you can't maintain a sprint. And so really just slow down and enjoy it. Well, you've done a lot of things very, very well. Uh, if there was a young lady that wanted to follow in your footsteps, what would you tell her? Find that support network. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, again, inside your industry. Um, I had the wonderful opportunity to work for a couple of years in the tech startup world and found and met a lot of amazing people who are just so supportive and collaborative. And I have relied on them throughout this transition you know, into entrepreneurship. And of course, my family and I have an amazing life partner with my husband. Um, so really just get that support network because you know that's how I'm able to do all these things is through them. Well, you've had tremendous success and, and certainly that's, I see no reason for that not to continue to ascend. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you and learn more about Sheer Structural, uh, how would they get a hold of you, you know, phone number, email? 
Mallory? Sure. Um, all of our information, including my email address, is on our website at sheer, S-H-E-A-R, structural.com. And our phone number is 678-664-8051. Well, Mallory, you've, had, you've been a great guest, continued success, and we appreciate you being on the show today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for having me. Angie Raycott, how are you this morning? I'm excellent. Thank you, Corey. Angie is a 25-year veteran of the CF, with the CFP financial. Uh, she's a financial planner, and she has a company called Financial Care Providers. Correct. You've got a ton of experience helping people with their money. Thanks for making me feel old, Corey. <laughs> I'm a lot older than you, so the only one feeling old in this room is me. But how did you get into financial planning, Angie? Um, I love numbers. Um, I majored in finance in college. And um, I have a degree in finance with a focus on analysis and a minor in statistics. But as a child, I grew up in a home of entrepreneurs. Um, My daddy had a heating and air conditioning business. And when I was eight years old, I was just left out of everything that was going on. So they needed to That's impossible for me to believe that you got left out in anything. Left out. And eight years old. And so they wanted to find a job for me. So I used to sit at the table with the big checkbook open, the one with the rings, and you would go through and I would take all the invoices and I would write all the checks and I would go to this tag on the on the left side and subtract them out of the checkbook. And that's and take the paper clip and clip it onto the invoice and have it all stacked and ready for dad to sign the paperwork. And it was really important that I did it all right. And at that age I didn't realize I was taking three times the amount of time to get it done that they could, and they could check it easily. But but I did an amazing job. And what I learned is that's who I was. That's how I took care of people. That's how I was a part. That's how I was the functioning support in the family unit. I have always loved math, and it was a um, toss-up for me whether to major in finance. Did you just say you love math? Love math. I thought that's what you said. And it was a toss-up whether I was going to major in finance or physics. Um, but I got recruited by UGA into the business school and um, decided that that if I, if I didn't like it, I could move into the science school, but it would be harder to move from science to business. So that's why I chose finance. Sounds like it made a significant impact on you helping your dad, you know, with mm-hmm. his books and his business and writing the checks. And obviously it seems like it was, uh, it was a good training for you to do what you're doing now. Excellent training. I not only was just adding and subtracting, and and learning to deal with the pressure and stress of doing it right at a young age. I mean, because that that was really on me. What I learned was all the functionings around it. Of course, it made sense that you had a job and you had these expenses and you had these profits and this is what happened. And this is who I needed to talk to at the bank. And this is who I needed to do this. So I grew into being, you know, it, it, and it wasn't just that I could do them. I was doing it with math. But um, taking care of people, taking care of those clients, taking care of those customers, making sure that um, the workers that we had were scheduled correctly. You know, it, we were a family business. And so it fell to all of us to learn about things. And I learned about functioning as a whole. And I learned about the importance of money in holding it all together and, and the checks and balances that it provides. So at some point, did were, were you taking money to the bank and were you writing the checks? Did you sort of grow into that or you were just sort of putting it all together? I was just sort of putting it all together. And I, well, and that would be because I left, I was raised in a small town as well. 
and left at the age of 18. How small? Eastman, Georgia. Um, it, it's, it's in Dodge County. It's actually in middle Georgia. I don't know what the population is today. But we did, ha- we did boast. We did have two red lights. Good stuff. So you're a certified financial planner. That's, that's a big deal. Tell us about that. That was an incredibly hard journey. Um, being a certified financial planner, you actually study six different avocations, whether it's tax, estate planning, the investment side of it, um, pensions and profit sharing plans. There's six different aspects and you study it in six different pieces. When they test you, they combine all the pieces. Um, that's not what they do in the study part Google. of it, but that's what they do on the test. And at the time, in the early 2000s, when I passed the CFP, it had like a 48% pass ratio. Um, the test was just amazingly difficult. And the CFP board had made it that way to increase the value of the, um, of the certification. Well, having all of that knowledge, I'm sure is, is useful for you to guide clients and to, to get them to wherever they need to be financially. It's, it's invaluable. And you may not know what you need to know, but you know there's something out there and I can research and find the right answers because things have evolved and changed so much. But you definitely know that there's something out there and where to go and research and find more information for your clients. I think the other side of this too is that with uh, having so much experience in financial planning and yet with you having the discipline and the experience with all of the aspects of it, putting it all together and, 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 and telling someone that's a financial planning client, okay, we need some focus over here on this aspect or here on that aspect. That has to be, that, that to me seems like it would be very useful. I think the most useful piece of it is drawing out a map of what today is like and looking at tomorrow and determining is today going to result is what you're doing today going to result in the outcome you would like to have um, money isn't everything but it really does come right behind oxygen and if you don't have the money to do the things you need and take care of the people around you um, and you don't have the ability to support and take care of yourself and you've left yourself open to um, risks um, whether it be an insurance based risk or different life consequences. Um, having things handled and having that security is very important to the well-being of a person. Yeah. You started financial care providers about eight years ago. Correct. I, I trademarked that name. How, how did you come up with that name and, and, and how does that help your clients? Um, I actually came up with that name brainstorming with, with uh, my business coach. And as we were different bringing up stuff, it always came back to taking care of people. I mean, I'm a Southern female. Um, It always came down to taking care of others. And how did I take care of them was in the financial sense. Um, And we started looking at different things. And as I did, I was on GoDaddy and I was just typing in the words as we went through and um, found that financial care providers was not taken. And I said, dude, it's mine. I'm taking it. That's a, that's a great that's a great name, and you're part of uh, you're part of sort of a bigger cons- financial care providers is certainly a that's a great name, and I think it's important because it demonstrates and says exactly what you're doing. Part the strongest piece I think I have in my practice 
is transparency. Um, I'm really open. I'm really honest. And I want people to be as open and honest as with me as I am open and honest with them. And by going through and laying out their finances really openly, really honestly, none of us need to be perfect, but we all need yeah. to be good. And by getting the true slant on it and what they're wanting to do with their money, I can put them in, tailor their financial plan to really suit them and their family and their needs. Do you ever get clients that don't do what you ask them to do? Oh, yes. And? You know, if they're putting themselves in, in danger or taking more risks than what they should be doing, or I feel like there are consequences, um, I tell them that very openly. I also write a letter and let them sign that, that we have had this very open conversation about what I feel about the risks and what how it could impact them and their financial situation. What are, what are some of the most asked questions that you get with clients, new clients that come in? Um, wow, there's so many of them. Um, most of the clients want to know about what type of process that they're going to be involved in and how is their ongoing experience with me going to be. Um, in today's environment, many times when they have called in to their uh, pr investment provider, they no longer speak to the advisor. They're always speaking to somebody on staff and, and being moved and pushed around, or now they work with a team and no one's accountable for what they do. Um, I think what they really need to know is that their relationship is going to be with me. Um, I've got clients that are remarkably similar. But if they called me on the phone with the same question, it would be a different answer because they may be similar on paper, but not similar in their situation or what they have going on in their life or not similar in their health or differing children, those kinds of things. So I really have to know my client from a 3D standpoint and understand what they're doing and assure them is that I'm going to be here and I'm going to be the one taking responsibility and I'm going to be the one that's going to be available to you on the phone. And that I'm always going to be responsive. Yeah, responsive is, is definitely a word I would use to describe you. When you, what's the most rewarding thing that you do on a day to day basis? The most rewarding thing I do is spend time with my clients. And especially at this point, I've got some clients that have been with me for many years. And I go and I do an annual review and um, they, they sit down and you actually have people. I've I've seen my older clients that come to tears and said, Angie, thank goodness we have you. Thank goodness I have you here. I don't know what I would do. Um, a lot of the couples, husbands are becoming less able and the financial choices are falling on the wives and they do they question their competency on the technical issues. And I'm happy to stop and take the time and explain things thoroughly to them so they understand what they're doing. And I'm happy to interface with them and their CPA to get their taxes done or and their estate planner to get documents set up and to explain to them clearly now and ongoing what they have and how life is going to be for them. 
A couple of words that come to mind from my interaction with you would be advocate, uh, resource. And I think with financial planning, it's such a it's such a deeply personal thing. And to have someone that's able to sort of get all of the ingredients and sort of blend them together and set you down a path and give you the outcome you want, that's that's incredibly powerful. It is incredibly powerful. And defining out how your behavior today can affect your yeah. future results is, um, I think, the most impactful. You have another uh, thing that you contribute heavily to. Tell us about that. Um, Mallory already alluded. Mallory is um, one of my amazing advisory board members who does not have the choice to come back each year. She is coming back each year. Um, She's voluntold. There you go. Um, It's called Golf for the Kids, and you can go see about our tournament online at golfforthekids.com. But um, this year will be our 12th annual event. Um, Golf for the Kids is a is it invitational only? It's a tournament that benefits Children's Health Care of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, we, ser- we support the research of the Affleck Cancer Center. And each year, the first about $15,000 that we raise is um, used to fund one more service dog um, on the floors of Children's Health Care of Atlanta. We've got three cancer centers. We've got 13 dogs at the time, and one's about to retire. And each year, what we're committed to doing is putting four more paws on the floor and supporting the um, handlers and these animals so they can continue to help bring more wellness and joy to the kids while they're at Joa. What a great thing you've started there. How did you get the idea to do that? Um, Actually, the the program started out with St. Jude and then we were benefiting St. Jude. And then in year 10, we brought it home to Atlanta by changing our benefactor to Joa. But um, a friend and client of mine called me up one morning, Saturday morning, and he said, hey, said, hey, he said, do you ride horses? And I said, well, yeah, I I don't ride fancy. I don't ride dressage or anything, but I ride on top. I've tried other ways and it didn't work out so well. So staying on top is good for me. Um, He said, I have got this opportunity. We've got all these children that have come down and we've got a horseback riding um, event going on at Chastain Horse Park and we need volunteers. And I said, great, when do you need a volunteer? He said, about an hour ago. So I made phone calls, I changed my clothes and I went out. And what I realized was how amazing these children are. I have a um, background as a Boy Scout leader, but how amazing these children are after dealing with lots of healthy children. I was dealing with kids facing the fight of their life. And I was looking at just how much this really meant to them was to be on a horse. It wasn't just another Saturday fun day. It was, they were soaking in every drop they could get. They needed to be happy and they needed to enjoy themselves so much more. They just need to be children and they are faced with something bigger than I can even conceive. Um, And they decided, they said, you know, about everybody doing fundraising. And I had just started playing golf. And they said, you know, why don't you do a golf tournament? And I was like, I'm only playing executive courses. I'm not even playing full-size courses yet. No, there's no way I can play, do a golf tournament. And just that ugly feeling of having to say no really stuck with me. And within about nine months later, I was doing a golf tournament. 
Well, you've had tremendous success in financial planning. There's, you know, you've obviously made a significant contribution with the initiative that you just spoke about with the kids golf. Mm -hmm. If you were going to give the younger version of Angie some advice, what, what would that be? Just move forward. Don't be so tentative and don't, don't place so much value on what other people think because they mm -hmm. really don't think about you. Just get out there and do your thing. Mm -hmm. And you know, there are going to be people that just love you and support you. And that's your tribe. Worry about them. Yeah. Don't worry about the people that are not. Great advice. If there was a young lady that wanted to follow in your footsteps, what would you tell her? You are not going to get where you want to go if you throw stones at every dog that barks at you. Just, you don't need to convert people. You don't need to fix people. You need to just do your thing and be your expression in this world and keep moving forward. Um, really think seriously about what you're doing and make sure that what you're doing um, glorifies um, God in every way. And that when you're moving forward, you're moving forward with a positive ask, with a positive attitude and the intention of a positive outcome for everyone that you touch and, um, and go do it. Angie, if the listenership out here wanted to get a hold of you of financial care providers, how would they do that? You can reach me easy by email, Angie at financialcareproviders.com, or my phone is 770-353-6333. Angie, you've had tremendous success. Uh, thank you for being on the show. You've been a great guest. It's been another great show at Tuesdays with Corey, Lisa Faith. Thank you again. Thank you. Patricia Friedman, thank you. Thanks. Mallory, At Mallory Atkinson, thank Thanks. you. And Angie, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, Corey. And we all know that uh, Tuesdays with Corey would not be possible without the long-term care planning group. So thanks for coming in here uh, every Tuesday or one Tuesday a month. We love having you guys. Thank you so much. All right. We'll see you guys all next time on Atlanta Business Radio.